Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast for Thursday, February 2nd, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will provide an audio companion to an article from the February 2006 issue of Critical Connections entitled, Preventing Pediatric Trauma, the Role of the Critical Care Professional. Our discussants and co-authors of the article are Anthony Slonim, MD, Doctorate of Public Health, FCCM, and Angela Hsu, MD, both from the Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Hsu is a fellow, Critical Care Medicine, Children's National Medical Center, and a clinical instructor, Pediatrics, the George Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Slonim is an Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the George Washington University Medical Center. He is also Vice Chair for Clinical Effectiveness, Department of Pediatrics, and Executive Director, Center for Clinical Effectiveness, Children's National Medical Center. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. I thought we'd start out uh, by having you talk a little bit about this concept of critical care professionals as playing a role in prevention and maybe having you talk a little bit about how the culture might change uh, in terms of in the pediatric ICU to have intensivists start to think of themselves a little bit more as people who can sure. prevent things. Um, so in the, in the prevention of pediatric trauma, there's uh, what I would consider a cycle of prevention with uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary levels of prevention. And in the primary prevention, the focus is, you know, preventing the actual traumatic injury from occurring. And a lot of this is, you know, the anticipatory guidance that occurs maybe at a pediatrician's office, perhaps the workshops for bicycle helmet safety and whatnot in the community. And it's probably true that most intensivists don't see themselves in playing a role in primary prevention. Secondary uh, prevention is really once you know, the injury has occurred, and it's a lot of education facilitating the, the care of that patient once they're injured. And tertiary prevention is actually, the goal of that is to restore that child to the highest level of function that they, they had previous to the injury. And I would think that um, in intensivists, they, they are vital to the process of secondary and tertiary prevention. And they continue, they're going to play a continued major role in this cycle. Um, ICU professionals, whether they are actively aware or not, need to be educated and reminded of that important role in this entire cycle of, of uh, prevention. There's a, probably about 30 to 50 percent of, you know, all PICU admissions that we have so far in the country that are preventable admissions, and this includes the traumas that we're talking about, the non-accidental traumas that we see, and, of course, ingestions, whether they were, in, you know, intentional or non-intentional. And, um, you know, so it's, a, it's in the intensivist's best interest to be actively participating and knowledgeable about the cycle of prevention because they play an essential role. Dr. Slonim, did you have any other comments on this area? 
Yeah, Dr. Sue covered many of the major points. I think, in addition, critical care is perfectly situated to be able to impact what is usually characterized within the public health domain. Many of those public health campaigns around smoking or alcohol abuse or sexually transmitted diseases are where most of the prevention efforts have been. But with our multidisciplinary rounding style and our team approach to patient care, I think that intensivists are well positioned to have a role in preventive efforts. Dr. Shu, I was wondering if you could comment perhaps on some of the tools that might be used to be proactive in preventing trauma. Okay. Um, well, the, there's three major areas that I would consider that are important for a intensivist or um, someone to, in the medical care field to be effective and proactive in preventing pediatric trauma, and that's, number one, having an effective communication, number two, adequate education, and number three, having the ability to identify triggers to see where preventive strategies may take place. All this all this occurs at all three levels of prevention, and to be effective and proactive, all I see professionals must first be able to recognize their role in the cycle of prevention, and then, like we were saying, be able to ed- communicate this, this role to others and educate others in this, and then p- to teach and recognize the triggers of when certain prevention strategies may need to take place. One of the other areas that I thought was interesting looking at your article was I believe that you were saying that uh, pediatric critical care professionals would serve as a resource to other healthcare providers as a resource, perhaps, for prevention. And I thought that was an interesting topic if you wanted to expand on that. I think that's especially important. The ICU professionals are certainly a role model not only for other professionals, but I think also for the community at large. And this goes back actually to uh, demonstrating good behaviors even when you're in the car with your with your kids or your children's friends wearing your seatbelt when you're riding your bicycle wearing your bicycle helmet and demonstrating good behaviors it's not dissimilar to our role as we relate to other providers as we pay increasing attention to being able to educate families even from the critical care perspective uh, once they've suffered an injury about what other potential problems they might have or what other problems a sibling might have related to trauma, uh, we do have a role in actually uh, rolling that out and demonstrating our behaviors to other providers, especially general pediatricians who are at the front line of these kind of primary prevention strategies. One of the other questions uh, that I know we were going to talk about was that once a child has been involved in a traumatic injury, the goals and definition of prevention may shift. And I was wondering if you could talk Correct. about that. So once a, in the setting of our cycle of prevention, once a child is injured, we are already at the secondary prevention level. That child and his or her family are now engaged, or what I would like to call a captured audience, if you will. And you have to take advantage of that opportunity to educate them um, so that future injuries to that same child you know, his or her siblings or friends don't occur. They are no longer in that realm of, you know, could this happen to me or that kind of injury won't happen to me. It's already happened, and we have to take advantage of that opportunity so that we can educate them on trauma prevention. In the intensive care unit, it's a really special setting where the intensivists are active participants and facilitators of tertiary prevention. For example, um, one of my current research projects is I'm looking at um, early detection of neurologic injury in children with various diseases and disease states. With the current uh, medical knowledge we have and the current neuromonitoring equipment that we have available, such as the near-infrared spectroscopy, uh, bedside continuous EEGs, and brain tissue oxygenation monitors, that and along with you know, our new advancement in serum markers of neurologic injury, we're hoping that we can you know, be able to detect subtle um, you know, neurologic injury that 
things that we weren't able to detect before and things that may be too subtle that our clinical exam may, may miss. And we're hoping that, you know, if we can do, if we can develop such strategies and utilize them and correlate them with clinical scenarios, we can develop protective strategies so that they can be implemented um, for each child so we can ensure that they, you know, return to their optimum um, function post-injury. Um, one of the other questions I have is, um, you know, uh, I'm an adult intensivist, but I have a two-year-old at home, so I'm listening closely to all of this. I would imagine that when a family has a child that becomes uh, injured and is in the ICU, their focus on prevention must go up. I mean, these things really stick in people's minds, right? Right. They, you know, it's, they're, they're now in their, in the framework, like I said, you know, this has already happened. Now you're, now the parent is really worried. What can I do to prevent this from happening to, you know, my same child or, you know, my, my other children? How can I prevent this? You've now got this engaged audience and you want to be able to utilize that and educate them. You know, it's funny, Rich, one of the things that's pretty interesting is you never really have a need for the information until it directly applies to you. So all of, as a pediatrician, all of the literature that's gone on around the safety of car seats, well, until you have a child that needs a car seat, you don't pay much attention about how to, about how to load it in the car and make sure right. that it's safe and make sure that the belts fit around it and the child's secured appropriately. Right. Once that information becomes relevant to you, you have a child, then you certainly uh, step up your, your paying attention to what being transmitted. It becomes very relevant, very relevant. Right. One of the other focuses of the interview was going to be sort of comparing some of the challenges of pediatric trauma patients versus adults. And I know, Dr. Salonim, I guess you have training in both pediatric and adult uh, training. So I was wondering maybe you could help with that. Right. I, one of the things... Um that's interesting when I contrast my adult practice versus my pediatric practice um, is just how different the children are. Um, they really are. Adults, in some ways, I think the major ways I would characterize the differences are um, related to the ability of the adult in many ways to determine their own destiny. For many trauma patients in the adult world, they can tell you what they want. Sometimes they have an advanced directive uh, that helps to guide the ICU providers about the kinds of cares. They also have an ability, um, even for patients that may be uh, severely tra traumatized, to balance risks and benefits and consent to appropriate procedures. We don't have any of that with children. I think the biggest challenge is that there's another person always in the mix. It's either the parent or next of kin if, it's, if the parents have been injured as well and not available to you to help you work through those kinds of decisions. In addition, the child, going back to that advanced directive piece that the adult has, they, the adult may make some conscious decisions about how they want to live their life, but the child doesn't have that flexibility. They may, we may be subjecting them to a lifelong period of neurologic disability or devastation, being fed by gastrostomy tubes or tracheostomies, whereas the, you know, the adult may have had some real desires about how they want to live their life and not be subject to that. I think there are some more practical aspects. Adults usually come with, you know, a single weight, whereas children come in various sizes and shapes and need to have their um, therapeutics adjusted based on that size and weight. Um, and I think the, the final thing is that adults can tell you where it hurts. Um, oftentimes if they're conscious, sometimes with acute trauma they're not conscious. But with children it's that ever-evolving battle of where does it hurt. And I think as a result we get to a strict methodology for handling the acutely traumatized child, which is 
you CAT scan everything. You put tube, tubes and fingers in every orifice because you want to make sure. The reason for the method is you don't want to miss out on a pediatric injury. And even there's a literature out there that even some of the more severe injuries like aortic dissections go missed for 48 to 72 hours even in, in pediatric trauma centers. So we certainly want to be acutely tuned to the missed injury potential. And um, I had two other questions as sort of a follow-up to that. Is I remember, I guess, from medical school that uh, children tend to sort of be well and then very quickly can decompensate, whereas in adults, especially I take care of some very elderly people, you usually have a little bit of a sense of when things start to deteriorate. You want to comment on that a little bit? Sure. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, children will t- um, tend to compensate, and then when they fall, they fall like a rock. Um, they really go off the edge cl- quickly. And usually it's, it's what we alluded to a little bit before, making sure that you are sensitized to, this is really where the advanced strategies in the ICU for prevention come up, because walking around and noticing that the child has resting tachycardia and may be at risk of developing a shock-like state and intervening with fluid and administration of blood or looking for the etiology is important because once they start to go down that cliff, you have, may have lost your reserve um, quickly and it's, it's a the ability to turn back is somewhat limited. I wanted to uh, ask, uh, as a last question in the interview, I was going to ask you a little bit about uh, maybe conflict uh, within families or working with uh, patients, but I guess the the way to focus on that is this question of, of child abuse, which is, is certainly something I have certainly very little experience with as a source of trauma, and this must be a very, very difficult area, and so maybe if you could comment on perhaps prevention and, and when it does occur, how do you broach the subject with families and all of that? Well, child abuse is a very unique situation. There are, you know, obviously some several known risk factors for child abuse, and most of us in the healthcare, you know, arena, or at least some, you know, people that take care of children are are familiar with these factors. There are actually multiple opportunities for prevention of child abuse throughout the entire cycle of prevention. For intensivists, at least, once we have a child that was a victim of child abuse, we again have that captured audience we were talking about earlier, and you have to take advantage of that education opportunity. Child abuse is unique in that, you know, you don't have to, everyone has a role. You don't have to be a physician, a healthcare provider, or even, you know, related to the medical field at all to recognize the signs and symptoms of abuse and report them as required by law. So, you know, when you have an abuse case that occurs, all those that are involved with the case, the family or the child, can be educated, and in turn, they can teach others about prevention strategies so that they can identify families that are at risk and then hopefully prevent an an abuse case from happening. I think one of the other points that I'd like to make is, as we alluded to before, the membership on the multidisciplinary critical care team is essential to being able to do our job in the ICU generally. And as it really becomes important, certainly in the pediatric ICU, we rely on our nurses, our social workers, and the other elements of the team to help us identify the child that might be at risk of having a non-accidental trauma or pediatric child abuse. It's also important that we heed the warnings that they may indicate to us because often it's the nurses who are spending the most time with the child or with the family interactions and are able to see how the child may relate to the family, pick up on some subtle signs, and then bring those to the attention of the team so we can intervene. That was one of the questions I had for you. This has actually been coming up in New York City uh, in the news uh, over the last month or so. Is, is it always obvious to you or is it obvious the majority of the time or is it subtle that one member of the team may be concerned that this may may have been, as you said, non-accidental trauma. Can you expand upon that just a little bit, if you could? Sure. It, it is, um, I think, 
usually, um, for the cases that we tend to see, um, I think, in fact, many of the times it becomes obvious. The, the acutely traumatized child who is devastated comes to the ICU as a result of child abuse. It's not particularly, you know, there's a spectrum of them and a continuum. Some of them, it's obvious. There's no, uh, there's, there's no concern about missing it because they've got a devastating head injury. Oftentimes, the legal uh, folks are involved or the police department is involved. But for the more subtle injuries, the child that comes in with a broken um, a leg or has a particular kind of injury, we often rely on the other members of the team to bring to our uh, attention that there is some kind of a problem. And in fact, um, often it's the social workers who have had an interaction with a mom that just doesn't seem right. And this is where we really go astray because there are, while we do have some objective signs and there is a whole literature out there on child abuse, these things are a little bit more subtle. It's that feeling in your gut that you need to objectify to be able to converse with your uh, child abuse colleagues and get them engaged. So really focusing on the objective findings and translating that that little feeling in your stomach, that sixth sense, if you will, uh, into some objective findings so that you can take action is important. Any closing comments, Dr. Shu? Um, no, I just, you know, I would just reiterate what Dr. Solano was saying. It's really a lot of the times, you know, when you interview them and their story for the mechanism of injury is actually very important in, in our detection of child abuse. A lot of times, like he said, when, when they actually present, they're sick enough to present to the intensive care unit per se, you know, there's only certain mechanisms of injury that can cause such devastating injuries. And when they're, when the mechanism of injury that's described or relayed by a family member doesn't match, you know, that heightens your sixth sense. And then you start working down the pathway of, you know, was this a non-accidental trauma? We've had the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Tony Slonim and Dr. Angela Shu, both from the Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., on the very important topic of prevention of pediatric trauma. Thank you so much to the both of you for taking time out of your schedules to be with us today. Thank you for Thank having you. us. This concludes our podcast for Thursday, February 2nd, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.